Today's passage is Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. This passage can be found on page 796 of the Pew Bible. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But the glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Hear, hear now the word of the Lord, which, sorry. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> sorry. Children three to six can go to your class now. Haley, the whole service is ruined since you didn't get that last part right. I mean, we just got to stop right here. (laughs) I think uh, Joseph is with us today. Before I get into the teaching of God's Word, if you would bow with me in prayer. Father, we believe that this is your word. As followers of you, we say that this Bible was inspired, it is inerrant, and it is given to us that we might know you. Father, I pray that as I would seek to communicate your word and teach your word that your people through the power of the Holy Spirit would receive it not just as your word but as beautiful. It is lovely and it is salvation for our souls. So God be with us now. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. The title of my sermon this morning is An Insidious Life. Some of you are probably thinking, I've heard that word, but I'm not real sure I know what that word means. So the next slide should help us all. And it is proceeding in a gradual 
subtle way, but with harmful effects. So proceeding in a gradual, subtle way, but with harmful effects. An example of this is deadly diseases. They can be insidious and sometimes without symptoms whatsoever. So before we remodeled this stage a few years ago, it used to have carpet on it and the choir loft in the back, so it looks significantly different than it did a few years ago. I called a friend of mine, his name was Brent Hitchcock. He was a graduate uh, of Georgia Tech and he had started a small business and I asked Brent, because it was a construction business, would you come look at our stage and tell me, give me an estimate what it would take to redo, to remodel the stage. So Brent said, sure, and uh, we met. But I had interacted with Brent significantly a few years before this, and the reason was this. Brent was not just a, uh, a student at Georgia Tech, but he also was uh, an active member in the Army for several years and had served several tours in Iraq. So he was a little different than most students. He was a little bit older, probably while he was at Tech. He was in his mid-20s. And uh, I had called Brent probably in maybe 2012 or 2013 because we were putting on a conference and I was the director of the conference. There were going to be roughly two or 3,000 students, college students from the college ministry that I directed. And uh, I had asked an up-and-coming uh, speaker in terms of, at that point, not a lot of people knew who she was, but I had read her book, and I was fascinated by her story. This is the book that I read. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and the subtitle reads, An English Professor's Journey into Christian Faith. The journey was she had been a practicing lesbian for her whole life. She was teaching queer theory at Syracuse University and was a tenured professor. She met a pastor and his wife and over a period of years saw that the Bible indeed was God's Word, turned to God in faith and repentance, and became a Christian. This book is telling her story. She's an English professor. It's really well written. This is a free book for any of you that want it at the end of the service. As long as you'll read it, you can have it for free. It's my gift to you. Um, here's the thing. When I called Rosaria Butterfield and said, will you speak at our conference? She said, Clint, I will, but I want you to know something. I have received several death threats in the last few months, mostly coming from the extreme left, because as I begin to tell the story of how God's changed my life, many in the LGBT community do not want me to tell that story. And I've been receiving calls and death threats. And she said, so if I will come to speak for you at this conference, you have to promise me something. I said, what is that, Rosaria? She said, you must hire a security guard with a gun to be with me at all times. I had never had that request before, let me tell you. I'd asked a lot of people to speak, and I'd never had that request. So I said, 
I'll look into it and get back to you. I called Brent. He, was gra- he had already graduated and gotten out of the Army. I said, listen, I know you know your way around a firearm. Would you be willing for pay to come down to Orlando or wherever we were and uh, be the security guard for this person that is the speaker for my conference? And so we talked it all through. Brent came. It all worked out. He never had to shoot anybody. Um, she was a fascinating speaker, probably never had any other speaker more engaged with the students than this particular woman. And so it went, it went over without a hitch. So now, fast forward years later, I'm the pastor here. I call Brent. He comes and he sits here in the pew and we're looking and he's giving me an estimate. But then we start to talk about the conference and old times at Tech And we probably spent an hour reminiscing like you do with an old friend. So he left. He gave me his estimate. He left. Five months later, I got a phone call from another dear friend. And he said, you're never going to believe what's going on. Brent Hitchcock is in hospice care. They say he has days to live. And so the next day, I got up and I went immediately to the hospice care. And sure enough... He was almost unconscious. His belly had swollen to probably five times its normal size where the cancer was. He looked very yellow, and you could obviously tell this person was on their deathbed, and it wouldn't be long. I prayed for him. I prayed with him and the family. I left. The next day, I got a phone call. Brent Hitchcock had passed, and... uh, was barely 30 years old. It was stunning because of his age, but it was also stunning because just five months prior, we sat right here, he had no symptoms. The doctors told him this had been growing inside him for well over a year. In other words, he had an insidious cancer, a cancer that was going stealth-like, undetected in his life, and eventually took his life only five months after that, reuniting with him. Paul, in our text, is talking about a recidious, an insidious spiritual cancer. He, in chapter 1, is talking about the Gentiles and those that are living in immorality. And most of the Jews that are reading Paul's letter, remember, he wrote this letter to the Romans. Some were Gentiles, some were Jews. In other words, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. He says the Greeks, the Greeks were Gentiles. Paul wrote the first part, and if you wish to reread what we talked about last week, he's basically saying those that live in immorality... The judgment of God is coming. But then he gets to chapter 2 and Paul pivots. And he stops talking necessarily about the Gentiles that are walking in immorality. And he starts talking to the Jews about their problem. And he says, the religion that you are practicing can be, and most likely is, an insidious cancer. Remember I said the word insidious, it precedes gradual, it's subtle, but it has harmful and deadly 
effects. So the title, An Insidious Life, Paul is saying, you may be religious. That's what Paul's telling them in chapter 2. But religion can trick you into believing you're right with God when all the while you're storing up wrath from God on yourself. And he says, basically, you know, to the Jews, put it in contemporary language, he says, you know, you go to church, you're moral, you give your tithe, you're kind to others, surely God will accept you. But Paul is saying, not so fast. Not so fast. It's interesting because the Jews would have read chapter 1 and went, that's right, those people deserve God's wrath. Look at that. They're, they're thieves. They're sexually immoral. They're murderers. They're all of these. It's just Paul just lists that list. And they would have been reading it and giving hearty support. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And even we sit in the church as religious people and we read that list and we go, yeah, they deserve God's wrath. But what Paul is doing is he's turning the tables and it's like he's throwing a cold bucket of water in the face of his listeners. Do y'all remember the AL, is it ALS uh, ice bucket challenge? Paul's giving them the ALS ice bucket challenge. And I'm sure when that water hits them in 2-1, they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know that's what you were saying. And so Paul says to them, you do the same things. You do the same things. Look with me at Romans 2, verse 1. Romans 2, verse 1. It says, therefore, when, when Paul says, and y'all know this from your Bible study, I think. When he says, therefore, that therefore is linking it back to what he has said previously. And so he says to them, therefore, you have no excuse. Remember, he's turning it from the Gentiles to the Jewish readers now. You have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you judge, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. He's saying, you religious people read about these sins of those that aren't religious, and you judge them. But in doing so, you're doing the exact same thing. So then the question is, for us, Paul wrote it originally to the Jewish believer, but for us, how do we know if we're not the ones that Paul is talking about who's judging and storing up wrath for ourselves at the day of judgment? How do we know that for sure? That's an important question. Are we living an insidious life right now, sitting in this pew, just like Brent Hitchcock sat there with me a couple of years ago and had this cancer growing in his body that would eventually take his life in five months. 
Could you spiritually be like Brent Hitchcock sitting out there right now living an insidious life with something subtly spiritually eating away your soul, storing up wrath for you for the day of judgment? So Paul's challenge in Romans 2.1 is when you see someone judging, when you see someone gossiping, and this is the heart, one of the hardest things in the world, somebody says, hey, did you hear about, you know what we immediately do? We lean in like this might be juicy information. You know what's hard, really hard to do? is to say to that person who is about to gossip, do I really need to hear this? And is this going to help that person? That's rarely what we do. But that's what we should do. That's how we should handle gossip and slander and information like that. But someone might say to us, and often is the case, from Matthew 7, 1, judge not, Clint, lest you be judged. Y'all have all heard it. Anytime you bring up anything that somebody's doing, judge not lest you be judged. It's the most misquoted, out of context text I've ever heard. And I'll tell you why. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 2, 15. So if you're in Romans, you can just turn to the right towards the back a little bit. 1 Corinthians 2, hang on what I say. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 2.15. Now I want you to read with me, and I want you to notice this word in 15. It says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So the spiritual person actually does judge. He does judge. So when you say judge not lest you be judged, what does that really mean? Because it says here that a spiritual person judges all things. Now flip back to our text in Romans and let me remind you of the very last verse we talked about last week. In Romans 2, I mean 1, 32. It says, after the list of sins, it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If I don't judge and discern what is right and what is wrong, how am I to not make that mistake and give approval. So the idea of judging, just as a carte blanche covers everything, you could never judge anything, can't be. It simply can't be what the Scriptures are teaching. It must be that Paul is talking about something a little bit different than that. Because that is exactly what he's talking about. If you look... At 2.1, in Romans 2.1, it says the actual word is to pass judgment. If you pass judgment on someone, 
It's basically saying there's this attitude, there's this lack of humility in your judgment. And in your judgment, you're saying, and I think there is a, uh, a slide for this. In other words, to pass judgment is to believe that others are worthy of God's judgment while you are not. That others are worthy of God's judgment while you are not. It's even possible that we would pass judgment on someone for an attitude that we ourselves really do share. And it happens all the time. John Stott, British theologian, he said this, we work ourselves up to an, a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. You see, Paul is calling out the Jewish believers and he's saying, you, you heard me teaching and writing in 1, 18 through 32, and you were thinking to yourself the whole time, yeah, those evil people, they deserve God's wrath. And then Paul turns the table, throws the ice bucket in their face and says, ha, you too, you too. Francis Schaeffer, many of y'all have heard of him. He had an institute over in Europe. He said this, he said, uh, it's like there is this invisible recorder, and though the recorder is unseen, it's around each of our necks. And it records the things that we say to others and about others. And in the end, God will take that recorder and He will use it, your own words, to reveal to you how you judged other people and passed judgment on them without grace. And so God will be completely fair. He'll simply play that tape and judge you on the basis of what your own words have said are the standard for human behavior. Look at Romans 2.3. Romans 2.3. It says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? You judge others, but you do them yourselves. Do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? No one in history can realistically answer Yes, I think I will. I'm the one. I'm going to pass. No, we are all guilty. Look at uh, Romans 2, 4 through 5, just further down in our text. Read along with me if you would. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
Here's one of the things about the Christian life that I would venture to say most, uh, certainly most atheists, but most agnostics and most people probably don't believe is real today, period. That there will be a day when God judges us based on our lives. But the Bible over and over and over and over again says that indeed that is the case. So, the German philosopher Hein, when it comes to this text, presuming on the riches and kindness of God, which I think our culture and I do, he said it this way, the German philosopher Hein. God will forgive. He will. After all, it's his trade. I mean, it's like, that's what he does for a living, is he forgives. After all, our culture would say, God is love, isn't he? And so he, it's his obligation to forgive. <clears throat> there is some truth to that. That God is a forgiving God. But if you read this Bible, it will teach you also that he is a God of justice. That he, he cannot let evil go unpunished. How, how right would it be if Hitler got to the end of his whole life and God stood there and said, Adolf, you got me, man. It's my trade to forgive. I know you wiped out literally millions of people, but I'm, I'm kind of obligated to forgive here. I'm a loving God. No, that would not be justice. Could you imagine if that were your mother who was slaughtered by Hitler? You would scream out for justice. It would not be justice. God would not be a God worthy of our worship if he wasn't just. If he wasn't holy, if he looked the other way when sin happened, it would make him less. He would not be God at all. And so, how could that be? How could that be? It's so interesting, if you know your Bible, this passage, it's Paul's elder son that he begins to write to in chapter 2. And you're saying, what do you mean by Paul's elder son. You may remember in Luke 15, there is the story of the prodigal son. And there's the older brother, when the prodigal, he comes to his dad and he says, hey, can I get my inheritance early? <clears throat> he says, he probably doesn't tell his dad all of what he wants to do, but he's going to go off to a foreign country and he's going to drink and have sex and live it up. And he ends up running out of all of the funds. And then he has to end up going back to his father. And the older brother is frustrated. Like, Dad, he took your inheritance. He went and wasted it on prostitutes and loose living. And now he's come back and you're just accepting him back in. What most people don't realize about the prodigal son's story is the story is not really about the younger son at all. 
The story is about the older brother, and Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are like the older brother, they're legalistic. And he's trying to say to the older brother, just like Paul is saying in chapter 2 to the Romans, those that are religious, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the whole thing. We all need forgiveness. The point of the parable is that they're both lost, both alienated from the Father, and they both need salvation. That's the point of the parable, and that is actually the point that Paul is making in Romans 1 and 2. They're lost. They're condemned, worshiping idols of the hand, sin, And the kind of sin that everyone thinks of as sin. Now, he turns to the older brother in Romans 2 and he says, you people are trying so hard to be good. You think God owes you because you're better. You're lost too. Paul says, you're the same. We can't see it in the English translation, but there's two Greek words here in verses 2-5 that are talking about this idea of idolatry. It's where the words are used. Religious people have probably laid aside the, uh, the, the idols of statues of Buddha or a golden calf like in the Old Testament. But the religious person might find their self-worth in their morality. They might find their self-worth in their rule-keeping, their attendance at church. They worship their goodness because their goodness will save them, right? If your good outweighs your bad, you go to heaven, right? Wrong, says Paul. You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's judgment. That's what Paul says in Romans. Let me ask you this. This is very practical for, for you. For your family members, somebody that knows you really well, you want to get to the heart, maybe, of what Paul is saying? What would your loved ones, or maybe even your spouse, what would they say owns you? What makes you mad? What makes you happy? What makes you weep? Says a lot about a person. Says where they're putting their hope. Sin has its talons in us like a bird of prey that has swooped down and it snatches us up, digging its long talons deep into our flesh and causing great pain and ultimately death. An insidious life. Subtle, subtle, but deadly. Now read with me what the Apostle Paul says in these last five verses from Romans 2, 6 through verse 11. He says in verse 6, 
He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek glory and honor and immorality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress. For every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. In other words, it's real and there will be a reckoning for our lives. God is not partial. He does not show favoritism, says clearly in our text. And all of this, you may say, why? Why is Paul spending so much time in this section persuading us that we're sinners? And why, Clint? I mean, this is kind of a downer sermon, you know. Why are you talking so much about our sin problem? And I think the reason Paul did it And the reason I am doing it, trying to teach what Paul taught, is that in reality, we doubt that we are as sinful as we really are. And it says in 1, chapter 1, we suppress the truth because it is uncomfortable. Not only do we suppress the truth, remember last week I said It's not even just that we push the truth down and like a ball in a pool, the ball keeps popping up. They keep trying to say, no, there's not a God. No, it doesn't matter how I live. I can do whatever I want. And it keeps popping up and popping up. It's not just that we do that and we do that, but it's also that we love the darkness. All of us. Because when I'm in the light, it exposes my sin. So we suppress the truth, and we love the darkness. Now, some of us, we're probably willing to make some confessions like this. Well, you know, everybody's not perfect, Clint. Or, ah, you know, to err is human. Since nobody's perfect, who are you to judge? But deep down inside... We know we're flawed. We know we're proud. We know we're selfish. We know we're rebellious. And I think ultimately we know we're separated from our God. And that because of our sin and His holiness, we need salvation. We need to be rescued. And that is why, look with me again, at Romans 1, 17, Paul is saying just before he launches into this explanation of how bad our sin problem is, he says in 17, or maybe 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
You know why Paul says it that way? There's no other way to know God. There's no other way to be made right with God than the gospel. And the gospel is essentially admitting, Father, your word is true. I am a sinner. I am rebellious towards you. I'm selfish. I need you to save me from my sins. My good works, as the Jews thought, will never do. It doesn't matter how good I am. It will not save me. The only hope any of us has is trusting in Jesus that he, as a substitutionary payment for our sins, will forgive us and we, through repentance and faith in him, can walk with him from this life into eternity. It's our only hope. And so Paul is trying to say in this letter, both to the hedonistic pagan Gentiles, you're immoral and your sin is storing up wrath for God. And then to the believer or the, the religious people, you're immoral and legalistic and you believe your good works is going to save you and you're both wrong. You're both wrong. The only thing that can save you is the Lord Jesus Christ and placing your hope and faith and trust in him. With that said, let's close in prayer. Father, for some of us, maybe today we should come to you and say, Heavenly Father, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe Jesus is indeed who he said he was. He came and he died on the cross for my sins. I trust that you will forgive my sins as I come to you in faith and repentance. I want you more than I want anything else in the world. In fact, like the parable, I am willing to sell all that I have and for the joy before me, go by the field that has the treasure of Christ buried in it. If not before today, Father, I pray today, those that are outside of Christ would pray that prayer and come to you by faith. In Christ's name, amen.